0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated,
1: everyone.
2: Episode 167 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on the Proverbs 31 Woman. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer, and with me today I have regular panelists Katie Grubbs and Marie Hawes. Hey, Katie and Marie. Hey. Hi. Uh, Let's introduce ourselves before we get started, just in case we have any new listeners to the program. Katie, you go first.
0: Hi, I'm Katie Grubbs. I live in Leeds, Alabama. Uh, with my husband David Grubbs, the Christian Humanist podcast. I'm adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University. Um, I teach online, and then I spend most of the rest of my time managing the schedules of my four children, and uh, which takes up a lot of my time.
2: Thanks, Katie. Marie, how about you?
1: Hey, I'm Marie Koz, a regular panelist on the show, and I live in Connecticut currently with my family. Um, I studied early modern literature at Florida State University, and I studied uh, women's, gender, and sexuality studies at Yale Divinity School. And I'm currently working as a research assistant on an edition of the Tudor translations of Christine de Pizan. That's exciting. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, we'll have to finally do
2: that Christine de Pizan episode we've been planning for like six years. Yeah, we need to do that. <laughs> yeah, well, I we've got an obvious moderator for it, so let's get <laughs> let's get that on the schedule next year.
0: Yep, sounds good.
2: Uh, hi everybody, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I live in a suburb of Atlanta with my husband Michael Farmer, also of the Christian Humanist podcast. Uh, during the day and for money I work in engagement market research and uh, for fun I work on this podcast and write. Uh, you may have seen my work in Plow Quarterly or uh, American Book Review or or else have I written? I don't know I can't remember uh, but it's also forthcoming in the May 27th issue of Lithub. Uh, online, so keep an eye out for that if you're interested. Uh, So today, as I said, we are talking about the figure of the Proverbs 31 woman. Uh, We're going to talk about Proverbs 31, the chapter of Scripture. We're also going to discuss how that chapter's interpretation has affected what is expected of Christian women, uh, and maybe more importantly, what we are taught to expect of ourselves. Uh, We've gotten several requests over the years uh, for an episode on this topic, so if you are one of the people who requested that episode, uh, here it is. We hope you enjoy it, and we're sorry you had to wait so long. Uh, And I wanted to start this episode by saying the thing that made me finally decide to plan this episode after years of requests for it was that uh, I interviewed the author Mary DeMuth, on her book, uh, The Most Misunderstood Women of the Bible, earlier this summer, uh, and there's a chapter on the Proverbs 31 woman in that book uh, that really just blew me away and was so different than I expected it to be on the first read. Uh, and I thought it was really interesting and provided a really interesting way to look at the chapter and the figure of the Proverbs 31 woman. So we'll dive into that more. Uh, But I think uh, before we get there, the most logical place to start is to discuss our own history with uh, the text and the person. Did you ladies study this chapter in church growing up? Uh, If so, how were you taught it? Um, Let's kind of unpack those experiences. Marie, can you go first?
1: Sure. Yeah, in preparing for this episode, I had trouble trying to remember, like, specific instances of learning about the Proverbs 31 woman when I was growing up. But I do feel like, looking back, uh, the definite impression that I had was that this was sort of a prescriptive list of items about how to be a good Christian woman, and that a lot of that had to do with these gender-specific roles related to being a wife. Um, And— And the year of biblical womanhood, Rachel Held Evans mentions a P31 Bible study in her dormitory in college, Um, and I don't think that any of my youth groups or Bible studies growing up went sort of that far in focusing on the Proverbs 31 woman and uh, gender roles, but it was definitely sort of this uh, prescriptive and gendered thing overall if it did come up in church sermons or study groups. And this was growing up in um, an evangelical missionary kids school in South America would be my, my primary place that I heard about this, and an uh, evangelical um, church in Bolivia.
2: Thanks, Marie. Uh, I, I can definitely relate to what you're saying about that idea uh both being prescriptive and being kind of in the air. Like it's, it's hard to kind of find a beginning of it, but it's an idea that's just kind of always floating around. Um, that's, that's something that I yeah, definitely really felt pin
1: down. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, Katie, how about you?
0: Um, I'm kind of surprised that I never ended up doing a Proverbs 31 study kind of growing up in the, in the kind of Baptist complementarian world. Um, but, didn't. Um, and, and part of that I think is because when I really kind of got first started getting involved in saying the Bible with other women, it was in college and we were kind of choosing our own material. Um, and I, you know, that's not necessarily something that we were drawn to. I think it was like you guys said, though, it was kind of in the culture. It was in the air. Um, I do that one interesting thing that, that I've noticed over time is that I always remember hearing it mentioned as, in the, being mentioned as prescriptive in the sense of young women saying, oh my, oh, my goodness, this pressure, the pressure of this, people expecting us to be these things or whatever. But I don't actually remember getting that much pressure to, to be it. <laughs> I felt like I, I heard more kind of complaints about um, the expectations than actually had the expectations explicitly put on me. But there is a there. I mean, you know, a, having kind of floating expectations that aren't necessarily spelled out, you know, that still can affect you is a real thing. And, and a, you know, a lot of purity culture was that, you know, a lot of people who grew up in purity culture weren't necessarily sat down and given a purity ring and taught a Bible study about it. But there were these ideas in the air. And the, even if, you know, it wasn't, you know, put on you directly, you felt the pressure. Right. Um, So I do think that there I was aware for sure growing up of the idea that that a lot of people thought this was a list of all the things you should be. And kind of that idea coupled with another idea that was kind of floating in the air in my young womanhood, the idea that really before you worry about getting married, you should try to be the right kind of person. Right. Did you guys have that? I don't know if that was just me, but there was this idea that you shouldn't be focused on getting a boyfriend. What you should do is you shouldn't be thinking about boys. You should be thinking about becoming the right kind of godly woman Mm -hmm. before it's time to get married. Well, okay. well, where are you supposed to learn how to do that? Oh, look, here's a chapter that will show you like, you know, so those kind of ideas working in tandem, I think, is maybe where young women were feeling some of this like unspoken but very real pressure Um, of the the kind of pressure to focused on being a godly young woman and here's a convenient list right which you don't necessarily get the same thing for men in the bible i mean there are these um rules or these kind of guidelines for elders in the new testament right what an uh, an elder should be but it's not quite the same generic men here's a list of things that you could or should be doing um and so i think it very easily could be turned into something that is you know prescriptive or feels like a checklist or feels like something a young woman or older woman should be doing. Um, the only other place I think I saw it is I would often see it um, in that more descriptive sense of when an older woman, woman in the church would maybe like pass away or if she was being honored um, by younger women or something that these verses would be brought to bear, right? About the legacy. Yeah, and that's, praising really, that's her.
2: what I wanted to I mention too. actual eulogy. Wow.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, as a way of, um, or sometimes you would hear it like on Mother's Day, or it wasn't always a, a in an in bereavement sense, but but you know, a kind of uh, I would, I would at times I, I would hear it. There were times I'd hear it as descriptive of an older lady.
2: Yeah, I I would agree with that. I I think the the most I heard it um, is a Mother's Day sermons, uh, which there there is a reason we are. Uh, currently recording this episode, the first week of May, uh, I put it I in wondered this. wondered about that. <laughs> yeah, yep, I, uh, I I put it uh, in that slot on the schedule on purpose. Um, yeah, on when I was growing up, I heard that descriptor, like Katie said, um, to refer to older women. I don't know that I heard it in a, a eulogy sense, um, literally, but I certainly heard it as like a. Catch all compliment of like if if you were complimenting an older Christian woman one of the best things you could say about her is oh she's such a Proverbs thirty one woman and and that was a shorthand um, for lots of positive um, attributes uh, so I, I heard that a lot um, the other way I heard it sort of alluded to is when I was in college, the uh, the MLM 31 was really huge in my uh, Sunday school class. And 31 is a Christian multi-level marketing organization that takes its name from that chapter of the Bible and sells uh, rather overpriced luggage and purses that you can get monogrammed. Um, but the idea is that Uh, You can, as a woman, sell this stuff and bring money to your family while also um, staying at home and and not having to have a job outside the home. Um, And that that idea of capitalism, I think, runs really strongly through lots of interpretations of this chapter uh, in ways that we will unpack later. Uh, But first, now that we've talked a little bit about personal connections Um, Let's break down the text. Katie, tell us a little bit about Proverbs 31's historical background.
0: So Proverbs 31 is the last chapter in Proverbs, which is a book of wisdom literature, a book of wise sayings. Um, The beginning of the book says that these are sayings of Solomon, Um, but Obviously they're not all because the beginning of chapter 31 here says the words of King Lemuel, the oracle, which his mother taught him. Um, And there's different, and Demuth talks about this in her book. And I've read it other places too, that there's differing opinions on, uh, there's no other mention of this King Lemuel in the Bible. And so there's differing opinions. Some people say, well, this is just Solomon using another name for himself, which I suppose would make the unnamed mother Bathsheba Um, or there's uh, one of my personal favorite views of this chapter is that this is just a kind of a framing device to set up a description of just a personification of wisdom as the perfect woman, as you see elsewhere in Proverbs. Throughout Proverbs, wisdom's personified as a woman, um, and so that's another. Possibility. Um, It is an acrostic. Chapter 31 is an acrostic. There are multiple acrostics in Proverbs. Basically, the different verses um, begin with the ABCs, um, the Hebrew alphabet, and it was a memorization tool so that um, people could remember it and recite it later. Um, It's like uh, Psalm 119 is another example. Um, And another name that this section, particularly t- verses 10 through 31, the description of the woman, it's sometimes called the Eshet Ha'il, which I'm probably saying those words, pronouncing them incorrectly, or the kind of woman, that's the phrase that means um, excellent woman or woman of valor in the chapter. And that is sometimes, that phrase is sometimes used as like a kind of just, just a name for this section. Um, that's what about- um, Marie mentions. A Year of Biblical Womanhood, and Rachel Held
2: Evans, um, that phrase, if you've read that book, um, listeners, you'll recognize it as, as her kind of rallying cry that she took up to uh, honor women when they did positive things.
0: That's really cool. Um, and one other way, the and the only thing I was going to say about that is that um, one way it connects with kind of other books of the Bible is that there is a part in... Um, I believe it's in First Kings. There's a different section where it talks about Uh, the wisdom of King Solomon and all of these different people from these surrounding countries coming, like the Queen of Sheba, people coming to Solomon to seek his wisdom. But um, scholars also are fairly certain that he was also gathering wisdom from surrounding places because there are some Proverbs um, in the book of Proverbs that are basically Hebrew translations of some Egyptian Proverbs. So it seems like he was also gathering information or wisdom sayings from other places. And so if that's true, it would be very fitting if, If he did pick up this little chapter from a king of a different area, right? Somebody else around him, you know, maybe he found this kind of poem about the perfect uh, woman and thought, well, that's really nice. I'm going to put that in my book. Um, and so that's another possibility of for where that came from, is that it could be something that he had collated, um, something he found elsewhere and that he thought was worth including in the book. Um, so just to kind of give a sense of of what this is and how it fits in with other books. And and obviously, I should have said this before, but I didn't. It's, it's poetry. This section is all poetry, as the Proverbs are so um, did you guys have anything else you wanted to add that I didn't already say about this
2: Uh, I don't I think that kind of hits the uh, the most common um, facts about the chapter that I was aware of Uh, how about you Marie
1: no yeah that seems like some good background there
2: Uh, so now for background of a slightly different stripe Marie, talk to us about interpretation history. Uh, What have we said about this book in the past? How have we interpreted it?
1: Okay, so there are a couple of uh, major ways of interpreting this passage. Um, One really major way, of course, is looking at it simply as a praise poem. This poem praises the attributes of the woman of valor or the good or capable wife and uh that the, the good wife is very rare uh makes this a little bit of a backhanded compliment to women as a whole it seems like and this sort of interpretation of this as simply a praise poem uh often would play into how this is used sort of in a um, popular or uh, church settings to, as one scholar puts it, uh, have a favorite Mother's Day sermon text that makes you feel guilty and inadequate. Um, And uh, so so that's one major strand. Another way that this poem is frequently interpreted, and uh, as Katie just mentioned, is in the context of Proverbs as a whole and the portrayal of wisdom, and women um, throughout the book. So it can be seen as this kind of portrait of wisdom as a woman that parallels the personifications of women especially um, and sort of works as a frame for the book in that way and some people say that the poem is so specific about the activities of the the human woman in this poem in order to keep this personified wisdom from being understood as a goddess so that's kind of an interesting interpretation and This elevation of wisdom as a woman would be a little bit in contrast, it seems to me, with the frequent focus in Proverbs, Um, even at the start of this final chapter, uh, where we have the sayings of the mother of King Lemuel on that connection between women and the dangers of sex, um, and this Sort of perfect personified woman in Proverbs 31 would then also explicitly contrast with the uh, the sexual dangers of the strange woman of Proverbs 1 through 9, who's sort of the counterpart of uh, woman wisdom there.
2: But wisdom then of course, is usually a woman, right? Like in in Greek, so Sophia, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So,
1: I mean, so it makes sense that you would interpret this passage as uh, in relation to uh, wisdom as a woman. Um. And then in terms of interpretation history as well there are of course you know lots of other ways of looking at it uh for instance uh, some people would say maybe this is praising one very specific woman lemuel's wife but i don't know about that um and there are a few socioeconomic readings in the context of historical records of persian period women these are particularly from christine yoder And along with that, the issue of class has been raised, like how much does this upper-class woman of substance sort of take, how much does she take her substance from the uh, exploitation of lower classes? And finally, one recent interpretation that I kind of like uh, from Jacqueline Vaintraub is that this is a kind of anti-blazon that instead of focusing on physical beauty, fits in with the wisdom literature which it's a part by arguing for acquired wisdom so it's all about description of like actions uh, rather than of like physical attributes as you would expect if you were to take this as like a blazon kind of poem so,
2: so like an intellectual blazon. yeah yeah I'm, I'm into that i like that a lot
1: <laughs> yeah me too i I, th- I think that's really cool yeah i like that idea
2: Okay, interesting. I think we have lots of, uh, lots of interesting background and uh, a little bit about how other people have interpreted the text. So what we want to do next is uh, really think about the language. So, so we can do that. Katie is going to read uh, the Proverbs 31 woman section of the chapter verses 10 through 31 aloud. Uh, so listeners, as she reads... Uh, kind of think about the words Lectio Divina style, Uh, we will think about them as well and uh, tease them out, talk a little bit as a group after she finishes reading.
0: Take it away, Katie. Okay, um, and listeners, I'm going to be reading from New American Standard Translation, so if yours sounds different, that's what mine is. Beginning in verse 10. An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She's like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor, and she stretches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them, and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household, and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates."
2: Thanks for sharing that. Uh, So, Marie, let's uh, start with you, and then we can all kind of go around and and unpack uh, phrases that jump out at us. But what did you notice uh, listening to that being read aloud?
1: Well, what really was interesting to me in um, preparing for this episode and reading a little bit about this passage and then hearing it just now is the... um, the amount of military language and uh, language relating to violence that you actually have going on in this passage, a lot of which doesn't actually come through in, in many English translations. So the term that Katie mentioned, "ashet um, ha'il." Um, which appears in verse 10 and verse 29 is actually a sort of heroic term um, that could be translated woman of valor, woman of strength, or even just strong woman. This hail is the same term that's used to describe like mighty soldiers and these military feats of valor. And you have this idea sort of all throughout the poem. So in verse 29, the, the idea of um, surpassing them all, that has connotations of like doing battle and in verses 19 and 20, the, the term that appears twice there for stretching out the hands actually has violent connotations, which I, I didn't know before. Um, that's This is the same term that appears in the Song of Deborah and talking about Hael with the tent peg. And there's also a couple like seemingly odd words um, that have, military connotations. In verse 11, you have uh, plunder or loot, which um, the NRSV, which I I was reading, uh, translates as gain. Um, And in verse 15, you have the term prey, um, which the NRSV just translates as food. So that's, again, kind of odd images of this woman, like, getting loot or (laughs) <laughs> plunder um, and praying to get the food for the family. And uh, in verses 17 and 25, the woman girds herself with strength, which is, um, again, the same term in both cases. It's like putting on weapons and armor for doing battle. And in verse 25, we have this phrase that she, uh, the, the, the phrase and the, the translation that Katie just used was smiles at the future in the NRSV. It's uh, laughs at the time to come. But that phrase actually has connotations of uh, laughing and victory as well. And then in the final verse, the language for the songs of praise for the woman is the same as for like a a term for victory songs. So it's a very it's sort of taking military language and applying it to the everyday actions of this woman, which I. I'm sort of of two minds about as a poetic strategy. It's like uh, really interesting in the way it, it valorizes like women's work in comparison with military feats. At the same time, when I think about things like uh, the the way in the new testament the kingdom of heaven sort of appropriates empire imagery and translates it to a new context it's sort of like the same idea going on with the violence here. Uh, is that strategy really going to do away with violence or does it actually valorize violence in some way i don't know but that whole trend in the language was something that was really interesting to me in looking at this uh, passage this go around
2: That is interesting. I have never thought about those patterns before. And now I want to, um, now I want to see the Proverbs 31 woman as like epic hero. I would, I would be interested to see since, uh, we're in a, a time that is doing a lot of rewriting of the Greek and Roman epics from a, uh, female perspective, like, uh, that Circe novel from a couple years ago, and uh, the, that translation of the Odyssey that, that I read a couple of years ago. Uh, I wonder if there is something similar recasting the Proverbs 31 woman as epic hero. I would read that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been argued that this is actually in the form of a heroic poem, but it's just you know translated to talking about um, this woman and her everyday actions. And that maybe this is sort of a rabbinic strategy for putting emphasis on intellectual activity uh, rather than on like military and physical activity, which is an interesting idea too. Interesting.
0: I think it's, um, I think all that's fascinating. And I I, I didn't necessarily know that about, I, I hadn't heard that about the military language, but I always remember The the kind of strength coming through these verses and I remember thinking it was strange when I was younger and it would be presented as a kind of picture of, you know, the perfect like stay at home mom because if you pay attention to what she's actually doing she sounds a whole lot more like a CEO. Yes, you know, she's buying things and selling them. She's trading things she, like you were yeah. talking about that kind of capitalistic focus. Victoria, yeah, there's like a there's
2: a lot of money changing hands here and a lot of people involved. There's like yes. basically an entire supply chain.
0: Yes, she's managing all kinds of people, all kinds of things, you know, and and. I think I I like that Marie brought up class earlier too, because that's the other thing is that she's doing all these things with lots of servants, lots of help. You know, this is an entire kind of ecosystem functioning within this household. This is not typical American Christian suburban mom who's alone at home with like some children and, you know, feels like, Oh, I should be able to do all these things. No, it doesn't make sense.
1: Which is Um, why
2: (laughs) I think I I mentioned the, the 31 uh, multi-level marketing scheme um, and that is why I think I find that particularly distasteful um, to to use that title to talk about that kind of enterprise and you know, paper over what's actually happening with a Christian veneer that is respect and valor and all of the connotations we have given to this text, like to kind of, paper over it and make lots of broad cultural equations that don't actually work. I don't, I I really find that kind of gross.
1: Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't work, and it's not like reading this kind of passage or this kind of ancient poetry today Obviously, we should not take it as prescriptive of what we should do. (laughs) I mean, especially if you think about the servant girls, very likely slaves. We're talking about a slave owner here, probably. I think it's interesting,
0: too, that um, at least one or two of the things that is in this description of the excellent wife are also things that the mother tells the king to be at the beginning. So she tells him... In verse, uh, where'd it go? Verse eight, open your mouth for the mute for the rights of the unfortunate. Um, And then further down in verse nine, defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. But, you know, then in verse 20, it said, you know, she's extending her hands to the poor and stretching out her hands to the needy. So it's also interesting that, you know, if we're going to look at this as a description of a strong valiant woman not just as a woman who knows her place in the home or whatever it's very interesting to me that she's being depicted as doing things that the king is also encouraged to do to be a good king to rule wisely because really what she's doing is she's ruling over this domestic sphere i mean her husband is kind of a non-entity other than 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 her actions reflecting well on him and i get that it's a description of the woman so there's not going to be focus on him but you know she's to me she's clearly in charge (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
2: in yeah. this
0: home um, And so it's just it, It's it's interesting I, You know She's functioning As a kind of You know um, As the boss And she's doing things That this king's also Being encouraged to do In the sense of Helping the poor Helping the needy
1: Yeah and In terms of the language It's interesting That it's referred to As her household And not her husband's household Which would be more The expected thing Even though again The focus is on The descri- description Of the woman Like you say But still It's a uh, interesting that she's in such a position of power and I think that that also
0: kind of goes along with one reason I really like the interpretation you were talking about about this chapter really being just about a personification of wisdom a feminine personification of wisdom because if this chapter is not prescriptive instructions for women but is in fact just a personification of wisdom then the things that this woman is doing in 31 these are things that men could and should also emulate Right. The things that she's doing in terms of industry, you know, holiness and all these different things. And I I kind of like that because I think that she's you know, there are things that she's depicted as doing attitudes that she's depicted as having. That would be a great example for men, too.
1: Yeah. And I mean, Vayntrope's argument with that is that it's not just a personification of wisdom, but it's a sort of this description of the value of acquired, like actively acquiring wisdom, um, in contrast with something like uh, charm and physical beauty, so taking the, verse 31 is sort of the key to the whole chapter, uh, verse 30, sorry, is sort of the key to the whole chapter. So definitely at uh, men emulating and this active acquisition of wisdom, um, and it's sort of capping the whole point of the wisdom literature in Proverbs
2: Can we talk about
1: verse 30 again for a minute? Because
2: I I feel like um, growing up when I did hear this chapter quoted, it was that verse that I heard, um, not just quoted, but kind of, and this might be a little strong, but I'm going to say it anyway, weaponized um, against young women in particularly who were um, focusing on the wrong things, who were being too physical, wearing too much makeup, um, messing with their hair too much, whatever. Um, that, you know, no, don't make that a priority. Make these other things that are that are more lasting a priority. Um, and, and that erring the other way was always taught to me to be a particularly feminine sin. Um, am I... Am I overreacting, or did you guys hear that interpretation too?
1: No, I don't remember this exact verse, but I I definitely had the sense of that kind of trend of instruction when I was growing up.
0: I would hear it paired with the verses about like don't focus on braiding your hair.
1: Yes, <laughs> and like
0: your hair. <laughs> you can't braid your hair too much or wearing too much jewelry. Um, I yeah. would I would sometimes see it see it said that way and I and I do you know think that I think it can be weaponized and I think it could be particularly harmful if it's if it's thrown out in a way that's not considered carefully because if you have a young woman who happens to be beautiful and you throw this at her and she's she might not be doing anything wrong but if you if you push too hard on charm is deceitful and beauty is vain and you know and kind of set up this dichotomy of you can either be beautiful or you can be a woman who fears the Lord, right? right. Like yeah, when that, we all that, that they can't can, coexist. Yes. Yeah, yes, that, but you can be both, you know. And, and I mean, obviously, what it you know the the emphasis is, you shouldn't, like you said, Victoria, you shouldn't be focusing on being beautiful as opposed to focusing on being a, a woman of the Lord. But yeah, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, and in fact, you know, the the chapter takes pains to tell us that she has she wears fine linen and purple. So we know that she looks nice. She looks royal at this woman, you know, so clearly it's not about that. You can't be attractive, but I I, I don't think that's too strong. What you've said, Victoria, I do think it gets thrown out because so often it is just pulled out of context. That's the other thing, you know?
2: Yeah. I I think this is, is probably a good place to, uh, to transition into Um, Mary DeMuth's chapter and uh, why I wanted to study this text in this way. So I'd like to talk about three things that are distinctive about Mary's book. Uh, First, the bulk of each chapter is centered around a fictionalized, um, sometimes first-person, sometimes third-person account of the woman highlighted in the chapter as misunderstood you've got prose fiction in every chapter. You've also got what she calls truths for misunderstood you, uh, the idea that we often misunderstand ourselves as Christian women in similar ways that we misunderstand um, these biblical women figures. And third All the chapters end with discussion questions that are meant to kind of walk you as a reader through the ideas that the chapter covers. So what I found incredibly refreshing about the structure of this book as a whole and definitely about uh, the Proverbs 31 chapter specifically is this combination of a real effort to humanize biblical figures that I think we can sometimes put on pedestals and feel really distant from and an emphasis on practical application, that we can do something with these biblical teachings that they do matter to us. Uh, So obviously I am a fan of what she is doing. How did the two of you feel uh, about the way this chapter is structured?
0: Um, I actually really appreciated the, the way that this was structured. If it had just been the kind of, novelization part of it, that's interesting. Um, And I think I enjoyed it more than I probably will the other chapters when I get to it, because I've always been a little bit uncomfortable with novelizations of Bible people. Um, But in this case, because we're not even sure who wrote this, who King Lemuel is, um, or anything like that, because this is a situation that feels more fictional anyway. It was not weird, and I I enjoyed kind of the way she fictionalized it, but I wouldn't have wanted just that. So I really appreciated that after doing that, she went through some commentary, gave some background about the chapter and how it's been interpreted in the past, um, and gave some useful information. To me, the best thing she said in this whole chapter, and I really appreciated that she spent time on this, is the idea that women are not the intended audience for this chapter anyway. Yes, um, that was
2: huge for me. Like, I I needed to hear that in my soul so much, and I was so happy that she said it.
0: Yeah, and and it's it's a great point that never occurred to me, but it should have, you know, because the beginning instructions, I mean, the entire thing is spoken to her son. This is advice for him. Um, and her pointing out that the last chapter, give her the products of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. That's clearly spoken to a a man, right? Not to uh, a woman. Um, and I thought that that was really, really, um, was really important because it is so often kind of thrown at women as something that it must be, uh, that we must be the audience for because it's about us. It's about women. Um, which is not true (laughs) or or (laughs) something that we throw at ourselves. I think like I'm.
2: I'm yeah. definitely mm-hmm. guilty. I, the thing that Mary and I talked about when I interviewed her, um, I, I said, you know, this chapter in particular was really a gift to me as uh, a recovering perfectionist. And she kind of laughed and immediately said, oh, I'm one too. So I, I think a lot of women, um, a lot of Christian women especially, um, can put a lot of pressure on ourselves and, you know, to... Uh, do all the things and you know give our money to the right organizations and uh read the right parenting manuals or marriage manuals or you know do all the church volunteer activities like we can kind of pile all these things on top of each other in a way that puts a lot of pressure on ourselves so the fact that she says um that these these values even though they're about women are told to a man so that he can recognize how valuable women are, and not as a checklist to make women feel bad about themselves. Like that—that that was really huge for me.
1: Yeah, that was something I liked. Uh, I thought was kind of uh, fun and creative about the narrative section. The way that she did it kind of emphasizes the intended male audience because it has, you know, Lemuel's. Mother talking to Lemuel, and the structure of the conversation is itself sort of an argument for this being intended for the male audience rather than the female audience. So that was a kind of fun thing about the narrative aspect. I thought. Can you give us an example, Marie? Um, that that's just the whole structure of her her narrative portion that she has the mother talking to the son, and that's how she's going through the details of the passage and transporting them into the mother talking directly to the son. So it's definitely a male audience there because it's the male character receiving this from the uh, the speaker. Right. I
2: I mean, can can you quote an example for us?
1: Uh, From the story? Let me see. So um, I guess part that stood out to me was uh, when – the son says, can you describe for me the lean years again? And then she goes through her different actions, um, remembering all the different things that she did. And that's how we get the uh, sort of litany of the actions of the Proverbs 31 woman um, as, she, as Lemuel's mother uh, describes them to her son. I thought it was interesting, too,
0: in that narrative that the 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 father's depicted as gone.
1: Yeah. Um
0: and so, you know, she's she's recounting for him the things that she did and, you know, the things that they did together even though the father, you know, and and the, the chapter, you know, talks about her husband speaking well of her but in this case, she she's portraying this woman as a widow. And I thought that was really interesting too that she's having to she's having to tell these things to her son because her husband is gone. And that was kind of an interesting choice to make. Um, I one other thing that I wanted to say, Victoria, because I was thinking about when you were talking, when you were talking about perfectionism and the pressure we put on ourselves. I really appreciated the way she tied, she she kind of acknowledged that reading this what makes a person makes a woman feel inadequate, and then tied that to to all of you know Paul's words in the New Testament about our weaknesses and inadequacy being an opportunity for to show Christ's work in our lives. That when we're weak that's when he's strong and that so it's not definitely our weaknesses aren't something to be ashamed of because that's a chance for the work of God to come to the fore um and I really liked the emphasis she put on time and the point that she made that it's it's not as if this woman is is was was all these things from day one like boom married this is this woman, you know, and uh, when, and the, the truths were interesting to me, like you said, the truths about fully understood you or whatever. My favorite one was you have a lifetime to create a legacy. I really appreciated that. The idea that, you know, you, you, it's not as if you could be all this instantly anyway and that this is a and that this is a retrospective too it's it's in the past it's not describing something that is you know that she's doing all of these things currently right now you know this is like looking back over someone's whole life which i think that's when people who want to bring it up as part of a eulogy i think that they're they're getting it they're getting an important aspect of this chapter you know to talk about it in a woman who's passed away or a woman who's still alive but is elderly you know as a way to look at her lifetime of accomplishments makes to me a whole lot more sense than trying to hand this to young women who you know i mean not just young women who are about to be married though i think that happens a lot but i mean i think any woman like single woman married woman whatever Anybody could take something from this that would be valuable, but I think it makes more more sense to to look at it in a retrospective way as descriptive than it does to hand it to a very young person because then they do think, oh, I have to be all these things like right now, and that's that's not that's not great.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I that was the part that um, stuck with me the most. You have mentioned in the in the truths for misunderstood you section. Uh, in fact, I I wrote it down a couple of sentences from there and taped it, um, above my desk at work, uh, these sentences here. Grace and truth are our tools to work through Proverbs 31. Instead of comparing our one bad day to one woman's grand obituary, it's important we offer ourselves the grace God so freely gives us. And, like, I... I really think that is something that I needed to physically copy down and paste up so that I would look at it, especially at work when I'm like trying to do all the things and manage all the people and make sure that all the work is in all the right places. So I, I really appreciated that perspective because I don't think um, I had really thought about the, um, the traits in that chapter with that kind of perspective
0: before
1: yeah it can be so easy to just fall into disparaging and belittling ourselves. That's important to keep that in mind. That's a good insight.
2: okay, so we've we've mentioned the fictionalization and we've mentioned the uh, truths for misunderstood You section. Are there any discussion questions that the two of you would like to point out?
0: thought that maybe my, to me, the most interesting one was number four, which is in your context, what does it look like to fear the Lord? Um, And and then there's a secondary question of how does that relate to charm and beauty, which, you know, that's worth thinking about. But I I appreciate that kind of contextualization because it's not going to look the same for every person. And that's the other risk of something like the Proverbs 31 woman chapter is there's a tendency in, I would say, studies about it or talk about it to flatten it out and attempt to try to make these things specifically applicable to modern life. And when you do that, you start to make it seem as if there's only one right way to be. But it's important to remember that in every person's different context, fearing the Lord is going to look a little bit different. So I like question four.
1: Mm, yeah. For for the same reason, I like question five, like, as you mentioned, our world is so different. And question five is how does our world differ from the culture of Proverbs, the Proverbs 31 woman, what is similar? What can you glean from her life and what can you discard? Um, so that I think uh, would probably bring up some good, uh, fruits for discussion in bible studies and that sort of thing um and it, also it's uh, interesting in thinking about what was the most uh, strange sort of narrative choice that she made here which i can see why she did it is that she sort of erases the kinghood of lemuel and the upper class status of the woman um which uh makes this sort of more applicable to a broader audience and trying to apply it to ourselves, I guess, but it does sort of flatten some of these uh cultural differences that would be raised by question five.
0: That's a great point. And I was thinking about that when I read it. I, I wasn't necessarily I didn't I didn't think through it that kind of coherently, but I was just thinking lean years, okay. Like you yeah, know was that's of not thinking, not really how did in that
1: form. Fit, no. <laughs>
0: yeah. Like Um, But, yeah, you're right. She kind of turned it into this situation of a kind of what to me is a very kind of my grandparents generation narrative of parents who grew up like my grandparents grew up, you know, super poor in South Georgia. And, you know, my granddad, by the time they hit his retirement, you know, like they had more money than like my parents currently have. Somehow they made that like odyssey like that. It felt that way to me when I was reading it.
1: Yeah, she definitely pulled herself up by her own sandal straps here, which I don't know how I feel about as a message, but I can—it's uh, I, I can see why you would make that choice, not to make her be just this sort of upper-class woman in the narrative. So,
2: because the two of you um, pulled out the same two discussion questions, I did, which I think uh, is great. I think that means we're we're on the same. Uh, page about what's important or interesting here, which is good. Um, Let's try in the next couple of minutes to uh, think about answering those questions a little bit. Um, Katie, you talked about what it means to fear the Lord.
0: Uh, What do you think that means? So I... I, that's That was a really interesting question to me because so many things that the Proverbs 31 woman in the chapter, is, so many of the things that she's doing are tangible tasks, right? Things that she's doing with her hands. She's buying. She's selling. She's making things. She's caring for her household, and she's doing all these things. And I think that often that's the kind of the, – the industry, her industry is what gets kind of – translated most often or you know tor- put put towards young christian women is what they should emulate um but clearly that's that's not all that there is to fearing the lord and so i think that in in our context then if we're going to try to figure out how how can we fear the lord um i think if you want to do it like the proverbs 31 woman does it and not focus it in these t- tangible tasks i think you know it, it It's things like um, generosity. It talks about how she cares well for everyone in her household, but not just her household, but she's also extending her hands to the poor and the needy. So it's generosity and compassion are things that in, in in this case to her, you know, for her, that looks like making clothes for her household, um, being a trustworthy person. This chapter talks over and over again about how her husband trusts in her and she's doing all of these things. He's not telling her what to do. She's making all these choices and buying and selling and things like that. And so if you think about it as big ideas like generosity, compassion, trustworthiness, um, that's going to look very different for every Woman. So in my case, fearing the Lord for me is, you know, often going to look like generosity and compassion towards my husband and my children, but also my husband's parents because we, you know, we go over and see them a lot and my husband's. Very elderly grandmother, like and helping with her care. You know that that's something that we can do that shows that we fear the Lord, because the Lord instructs us to care for those, um, you know, who who are needy, and also for our elders, for our parents and um, grandparents. When it comes to trustworthiness, you know, fearing the Lord, I think often looks like um, having integrity and not being changeable. The Bible talks about how we shouldn't be like shifting sand, and how the Lord never changes. And so, you know, to be trustworthy, like the Proverbs 31 woman, you know, to fear the Lord in that way is to have integrity and not be changeable with the winds of kind of changes in doctrine or culture or things like that, but to stick, to hold to the authority of, of scripture and to hold to, um, Christ as our example. Um, to me, that's what it, that's what it would mean to fear the Lord in my context. But again, every person's different, right? And every every Christian woman has a different context. So it's going to look a little bit different for every person.
2: Thanks for sharing that. Um, something that came to mind while you were talking about these virtues and, and how the Proverbs 31 woman models them is... Uh, DeMuth Demuth mentions uh, that a lot of those virtues are really closely tied to the fruits of the spirit uh, that we see elsewhere in the Bible, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. And I I think you can see those threads uh, in the examples that you talked about. Um, Trustworthiness, compassion, uh, the idea that we owe something to uh, older generations of people who have raised us Uh, So I I think that's a great point. Thanks. All right, Marie, your turn. Uh, Try to tackle some or all of uh, question five. How does our world differ from the Proverbs 31 woman's culture? What's uh, similar? What would you want to keep? And what would you want to discard?
1: I think I've already touched on a couple of the differences, but something that stood out, To me, like personally reading and preparing this time, is a similarity of the woman described in this poem. There's a lot of emphasis on how she wants security for her family. That's something that is true, as true today as it would be in ancient times, that we want to have security for ourselves and our loved ones. And when I was reading this and I got to verse 25, and it says she laughs at the time to come. And I was like, oh, what would it be to, to be able to just laugh at the time to come, to have that sense of security? Um, so there's that, that desire for security is something that translates, I think. But how to navigate, like, the world and life is necessarily so insecure, and thinking about like the world that we're going to my children are going to inherit, uh, how we're just sort of, you know, destroying the environment and so on. Uh, that kind of broad sense of insecurity is sort of all pervasive. How do we navigate that and retain like the fruits of the spirit that you're talking about joy? Um, how to laugh at the, the times to come is something, um, that I wonder personally and that uh, I want to it's sort of an aspirational aspect of this poem I guess to be able to have that joy
2: maybe it means not to see it all the time, but to work to find it. I mean, that's a, first of all, that's a very strange phrase. Um, it's, it's not a phrase that we use um, to to laugh at the future. Or, Katie, tell us again what your translation
0: said in that section. Okay, you said it's 25. Uh, um, NESB says, she smiles at the future. Okay. Which is a little softer than laughs. Laugh sounds defiant. Right, yeah. I mean. That's part of that military language. Yeah, and it, yeah, it, and do, it, you know, it is. Because smiles but. at the future kind of implies to me like a quiet contentment, which is totally yeah. different than laughs at the future.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's part of, of, of the strangeness, question. definitely. <laughs> yeah, but maybe it just means, you know, always find something joyful or something to be grateful for, right? I, I think that that's a practice that a lot of us Um, have or maintain Um, like when I was growing up we would all share um, around the dinner table what's the best thing that happened to you today and what's the worst thing that happened to you today as a way to connect with each other and also to keep those positives in mind to kind of keep perspective and I know I've spoken to uh, other friends of mine who have families who take it one step further and like write their positive things down and put them in a jar and then read them at the end of the year um, so that they've collected all of these um, good things from their family members that they want to remember. So, I mean, you know, I, I think there's there's a, a scarier way to maybe think about that, but we can, um, I don't know that we have to think about it in the scary, impossible to achieve way.
1: Yeah, and I guess, Uh, The emphasis on activity and communal activity in this poem too is is something that would contrast with like the passivity of despair or something like that like communal activity is a way of, of laughing I suppose. The the thing that I um,
2: wrote down in my notes for that question that I wanted to center more and and think about how I could apply more to my life is the idea of broader community and neighbors and responsibility to the people around me. Like We we live uh, in a townhouse, and before, when we lived in apartment buildings, I couldn't have told you my neighbors' names um, but but now I know the people who live on either side of me uh, at least know who they are and broadly who their families are and can tell you a tiny bit about them. Um, that is, of course, not enough. Uh, what I think is most admirable about the Proverbs 31 woman and the way she conducts herself, specifically in her privilege, we've talked a lot about class and, and the fact that she is higher class, um, I like that she, because she is privileged, sees herself as having a responsibility to all the people around her. Um, and, and that's something that I um, both would like to be a little better at and would like to be more day-to-day mindful of uh, too.
1: Yeah.
0: I think the closest we sometimes get to to that kind of, type of community is is our neighbors Victoria like you said or sometimes sometimes it can be kind of friends or or kind of people in our in our churches or at our jobs I think anytime you kind of move from thinking of someone as this is a really kind of goofy example but thinking of someone as a guest you have to clean up for and instead, move to thinking of a, a, a person as a kind of integral part of your life, or a person who you know could could just drop by, or you could call if you needed help. I think. I've been trying to in my life I've been wanting to establish more people like that because I think that's so rare um, now I think we're all so fragmented and and segmented that it, it's it's very rare to be close with neighbors to know your neighbors like you said Victoria or to have or even you know among kind of work colleagues or or church friends to have people that we are that close with that we really think of as like family um, and so I you know I've kind of wanted to try to establish that the different places that we've lived some of it was of necessity because when we lived really far from family we literally had no family support so we had to craft those kind of communitarian you know relationships or you know where we're friends but we kind of act like family with with friends because that's all we had but even now that we live close to family again i want to keep doing that because i think that's how you can that's one of the ways we can keep that communitarian. Spirit and remember to always be reaching out to others is by having people that we're close with who we can show compassion to show generosity to, you know, um, today was a perfect example. I needed someone to watch my three-year-old this morning. And so I called up my friend, Michelle, and I knew she would say yes if she was home and she did. So she took my kid. And then this afternoon I picked up her kid with my other kids at the primary school and he came home and he played at our house for like several hours, um, and spent some time with my kid. And so that just kind of that give and take, um, and dependence on each other. I feel like in some ways that's, approaching but still not the same as this kind of communitarian life that is being described in proverbs 31 of you know she gives portions to her women which that part of that's also you know like again like you guys said that's also kind of a servant master relationship which is not at all what we're doing today but the idea that you have a that that there's a a group of people and they're not all one nuclear family that's what i'm trying to get at i'm not expressing it well (laughs) but that i think that's kind of as close as we can get in some ways now
2: no, that's great. I, I love that. And I'm, I'm really striving uh, for more of that uh, interdependence um, that you were saying, too.
1: Okay, so we have talked about a yeah, lot really today. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just saying I really like that idea as well. That's something that I'm trying to work on personally as well. Great. Okay,
2: so we've talked about quite a lot uh, in the scope of Proverbs 31 today, so I think it's time to transition uh, to your favorite segment and ours, uh, our Passing On segment, where we recommend things we think you should read, watch, listen to, or otherwise enjoy. Uh,
1: so, Marie, what recommendation do you have for us? Well, I think I'll go ahead and recommend the something I already mentioned, uh, the January chapter uh, which is On the Proverbs 31 Woman, and Rachel Held Evans, A Year of Biblical Womanhood, um, because I remember that when I first read that, that was the what made me think about the passage differently, um, made me think uh, that it's not something that just has to have a prescriptive reading, Um, Because she really emphasizes there that this is a husband's unconditional praise for a wife, not this list of specific traits and actions and skills that women are supposed to curate in themselves. Um, And it's also fun to hear about her struggles with sewing in that chapter. (laughs) Uh, So that would be a good uh, companion piece to uh, this episode, I think. Thanks, Marie. Uh,
2: And listeners, if you do uh, read that chapter, be sure to also check out our episode on the year of biblical womanhood, uh, which we will link to in the show notes of this episode. Katie, what do you have for us?
0: So what I'm recommending tonight doesn't have anything to do with Proverbs 31, but it does have something to do with a previous CFP episode. Several years ago, we did an episode about a different podcast called Truth's Table, um, which features Christina Edmondson, Michelle Higgins, and Akemeni Uwan talking about their experiences as Black Christian women. And we had a wonderful time doing the episode and were really challenged um by the things that they were talking about. And what I'm um actually recommending tonight is a new article that is an interview by Esau Macaulay at Christianity Today, where the three of them were interviewed to discuss their new book, but also their experiences doing the podcast over the years. The new book is called Truth's Table Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, Love, and Liberation. Um, and so that's my recommendation tonight is this Text interview about their new book Um, I thought you would find it interesting listeners especially if you listen to that episode we did all that time ago um, to to kind of see this interview um, them talking about how things have gone in the years since then since they started their podcast and then how they're bringing out their experiences in their brand new book so that's my recommendation thanks Katie Uh, that book is on my to order list
2: Uh, I read the interview a few days ago and it, it sounds super interesting My recommendation is uh, a blog post by the egalitarian theologian Marg Mosko. Uh, It's titled The Other Woman in Proverbs 31 and is about um, King Lemuel's mother mostly, but it includes her in this really interesting listicle of other biblical women that give advice to men. So if you, like me, did not realize Uh, how the frame narrative of this chapter operates and that it's uh, a woman giving advice to a man about why he should value uh, good women, Uh, you might want to check out Marg's listicle about other uh, biblical women who give men advice. And I think that is going to wrap us up. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We want to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future episodes, or if you just want to tell us hello, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at network. And you can find show notes from this and other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Filippic is our press liaison. For Katie Grubbs and Marie Hawes, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in again in two weeks when we'll discuss women in ministry. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.